We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel according to John. I have titled uh, the entire series, The Message Became Flesh. And as I was preparing this week, perhaps because it's something that's uh, on my mind now, uh, I don't know many of you, uh, if everyone's aware or not, but uh, my sister and her husband have been living in Barcelona, pastoring a church there and uh, working with several churches, actually, um, and uh, have recently moved back here to the States. They're staying with us right now uh, at the home while they're kind of resettling here on this side of the pond. Uh, and it's, it, it's the topic of the, the message we're looking at today is about getting it wrong with somebody specifically with Jesus. Uh, and I was wondering, I thought I'd start out by asking you if you've ever had the experience of getting it wrong uh, with somebody. And I would have to say that I got it wrong with my sister's husband. A little over 30 years ago, my sister was uh, in high school and met this guy that was older than her and started dating. And uh, he was perhaps uh, a little shy, or maybe we were scary, um, but uh, he, he wasn't terribly forthcoming and open, and I, I, my initial impression of, uh, impression of him was not positive. I thought he was too serious, and Beth is such a joyful force of life. I thought he'd repress her somehow, or he's too old for you. You know, I told her all this stuff. You should never get serious with this guy, and of course, Rachel ignored me, uh, and they ended up getting married. And uh, boy, uh, I could not have been more wrong. Uh, I cannot imagine my sister finding a better husband than she's found. Somebody who's loyal and faithful and has been with her every step of the way. And it turns out that my sister is irrepressible. So uh, I had nothing to fear. And uh, he's actually a lot more fun than I knew when I first met him. But more than just the benefits to my sister, I, I shudder to think at, at what I would have missed out on. Because when Ellie and I first got married, our parents were both in Spain. We moved back to the States. We were in our early 20s trying to build a life and discover what it means to be adults and start having kids. And that alone is a rough enough time of life to be doing it without parents anywhere nearby to ask. Of course, at that point, we thought we didn't need it. but. Uh, it was so nice that my sister and her husband were in the same city through much of this period of our lives, and we were in each other's homes practically daily. And as we were both pursuing ministry and getting involved in small churches and trying to find our feet in what it means to serve the church in a, in a leadership capacity and uh, dealing with difficult uh, church members and all the things that go with that, we were uh, kind of side by side in the trenches through all of that. And we even were able to attend seminary at the same time and share some of those experiences together. And uh, he's turned out to be a tremendous encouragement to me, a person that loves the Lord and loves my sister. I shudder to think all I would have missed out on if my sister had paid attention to me when I was 20 and knew it all. Well, I'd like to ask you today to consider your take on Jesus and whether maybe you've got him all wrong and to consider what might be the consequences of getting it wrong with Jesus. Uh, that's what I've titled the message, Getting It Wrong with Jesus. We're in John chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Let's start reading verse 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, 
for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, this song that Roger wrote uh, is part of the reason all of this is going on. In chapter 6, uh, we, we have this kind of culminating thing. Apparently it's happened shortly after Passover, after Jesus returns to Galilee from Passover, this feeding of the 5,000, and the long discussion in chapter 6 that follows that feeding. And that feeding of the 5,000 was just an object lesson to make the point, you need what I have come to give you. If you do not partake of what I have come to give you, you cannot live. You cannot live without me. That's the, that's the takeaway of chapter 6. You absolutely need me. You need me more than you need bread, more than you need water, more than you need air to breathe. You will never live without me. The result of that was that a lot of people, a lot of people who had been following Jesus, stopped and said, wait a minute, man, that is really harsh. Who can bear to hear such things? And we're told that at that point, a lot of disciples left Jesus. Now, he tells us after these things. John doesn't specify how long after, although this story leads right into the Tabernacle of Booths. So if Passover happens in March, the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles happens in September or October, it's six or seven months uh, since the previous events. And we're seeing Jesus now with a diminished group of disciples. A lot of people have walked away from him because they say, I'm, I'm, I'm not up with what he's talking about. Um, and he's uh, hanging out in Galilee, and John tells us part of the reasoning. He didn't want to be moving about in Judea because he was aware that the Jews were seeking to kill him. I've said this before. The Jews is kind of John's uh, shorthand for the Jewish religious authorities. He doesn't mean every Jewish person. Obviously, all of the disciples who have stuck with Jesus are also Jews. John himself is a Jew, so he's not trying to kill him. It's not that every single Jew out there was trying to kill Jesus, but it was a unanimous sentiment among the Jewish leadership that Jesus had to die. And if you've studied the first century in, uh, in the, uh, the area of, of Palestine or Canaan, uh, you know that if you got all these guys to agree about getting somebody out of the way, it was very likely to happen. Uh, they, they had the power to make these things happen. And Jesus uh, is avoiding that. So by staying in Galilee, which was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, and therefore under the jurisdiction of a different king than the procurator the Romans had established in Judea, he could isolate him somehow, somewhat from the reach of the religious authorities in Judea. Uh, he's uh, been uh, ruffling feathers. And why, why do they want to kill him? Well, Jesus has just told everybody after performing a miraculous feeding, that they need him more than anything, that their only hope to live is Jesus. Now, the religious authorities know that if people come to that conclusion about Jesus, they're going to realize, well, what do I need you guys for? If all I need for life is Jesus, and I've found Jesus, then I don't need any of you guys. Why should I jump through the hoops you guys are putting in front of me? Uh, and they knew that this was a direct threat to everything they've been trying to build in terms of their power and religious authority. And also, I'm sure they took offense at the way Jesus spoke. Not only the arrogance of saying, you need me to live, 
But some of the metaphors he chose to use, chose to use were, were crass and crude and undermined commitment to the Mosaic dietary laws. What do you mean, eat my flesh? What do you mean, drink my blood? The law of Moses makes it very clear. You shouldn't even joke about that kind of stuff. So they were offended and angry at Jesus and wanted him done with. I have a question from these verses. Um, this first verse, I'm sorry. Despite the fact that Jesus never took up arms, never raised any militias or armies, never competed for any position of political or even religious authority, the powers in Judea were seeking to kill him. Why do you think they felt so threatened? Let's keep reading, verses 2 through 5. Now the Jewish Feast of Booths was near. So his brothers told him, leave here and go away to Judea so that your disciples will also see your works which you are doing. For no one who seeks to be known openly does a thing in hiding. If you are doing these things, reveal yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So we're given the time frame. It's the Feast of Booths, September, October. This is the feast at the end of the harvest when people, all the Jewish males were required to go uh, to Jerusalem and there set up tents and live kind of camping. And it was a reminder of how God had sustained Israel through the 40 years in the wilderness when they lived in tents. It was a reminder of God's uh, providence and the fact that we have food to eat because God provides it for us. And obviously this uh, is also tied to the harvest, at the conclusion of the harvest, when you had finished gathering in everything, you came to celebrate this feast, and it was a feast of gratitude to God for provision. Of course, ironically, the, the great provision God has provided is Jesus. But this feast is near, and his brothers tell him, you might think reading this, if we didn't have that parenthetical statement at the end by John that his brothers did not believe in him, we might think that they're actually on his side here, that they're encouraging him to make a better name for himself and to make himself more widely known, but that's really not the sentiment. Notice their choice of words. Leave here. Go away to Judea. There are other ways they could have expressed this, but the choice of words makes it very clear. They, they basically want Jesus out of Galilee. And none of the gospel writers really tell us anything about this. I suspect here we have a hint of what it might have been like for Jesus' earthly family when Jesus started his public ministry. And people are so excited about Jesus. He's performing miracles. He's preaching powerful sermons and challenging assumptions. And I'm sure people are saying this might be the prophet or the Messiah or who knows what. Something amazing is happening. And I'm sure there were some people that would seek out his family and say, can you give us some insight into this Jesus? But then as Jesus continues to work and teach and people are challenged by what he's saying and other people start to say very different things about Jesus, he's got a demon. This guy is a madman. This guy is a deceiver. Uh, I'm sure there were people who were shunning Jesus' siblings and treating them badly because of their association with Jesus. For whatever reason, they seem eager for Jesus to get out of Galilee and go somewhere else and be somebody else's problem. Now, their reasoning sounds like they're encouraging him to be all he can be, right? 
Uh, no, you want, you, all your disciples need to be able to see these works you are doing. And Jesus has been talking about, about his, a lot about his works. I am doing the works of the one who sent me. I am doing the works of the Father. These miraculous things that I am doing are things that the Father has given me to do. Well, if you're doing these great works, make sure everybody sees them. Make sure all your disciples can see what you're doing because if you want to be known openly, that Greek word is, it has the idea of uh, speaking freely without restrictions or censorship or, or uh, strictures of any sort. So it's the idea of proclaiming openly who you are, letting everybody hear and see and know who you are. If you want to be known by the world, if you really have come on this grand cosmic scale you keep talking about, then why are you hiding out in Galilee, the backwoods? Why don't you go to the big city where everybody is? Nobody cares about Galilee. Go to Jerusalem. Don't hide. You want people to know all this great stuff about yourself? Make yourself known where the people are. Don't go to Waxahachie. Go to New York. You know, it's, it's make yourself known. Make a name for yourself. But this is clearly uh, coming from unbelief. And I wonder if this isn't the way a lot of people come at Jesus from a position of unbelief. Have you ever heard people say stuff like that? Jesus, if you're all this hot stuff you say you are, all this great stuff, impress me. Come on, do something. Let me see all this great stuff you're talking about. And we make the, the mistake to assume that faith is the result of irrefutable evidence. That is not the case. Let me give you an example. Pharaoh had irrefutable evidence that God was God Almighty. He humiliated all of the things that supposedly Egyptian deities had control over. And God imposed his authority through ten plagues over all of that. And he did miraculous things that nobody else could replicate. Pharaoh knew God was who he said he was. But he never had faith in God. He reluctantly let the Israelites go because God forced him to. But it wasn't about evidence. You see, faith is not about evidence. Faith is a relational, not an intellectual thing. It's not about facts and lining up uh, agreement with facts. And I'm, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the faith is non-factual. It is. But I'm saying that facts won't do it. It takes more than that. It is a relational choice. It is a choice to trust in the God you have come to know. And uh, when you come at God with these kinds of demands, impress me, do something great, God doesn't play that game because he knows that's not what results in faith. Because God does things like this and people forget the next day. It takes more than evidence. It takes a willingness to respond positively to God's invitation to us. So... Uh, this kind of demand from unbelief. Thankfully, we know at least two of Jesus' brothers will eventually come to faith. Jude 
and James both end up writing letters that are in the New Testament. And we know from the book of Acts that from the early days of the church, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, his mother is among the earliest believers and they uh, are part of the church from very early, but they do not come to faith until after Jesus finally makes himself fully known in the death and resurrection. At this point, they're still bitter and unbelieving when it comes to Jesus. I have a question from these verses. Jesus' brothers, who did not believe in him, basically challenged Jesus to prove to the world that he is who he says he is. Here's what I'd like to, to consider. Did Jesus do that? Let's look at verses 6 through 9. So Jesus tells them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I bear witness about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast because my time has not yet been completed. Having said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Jesus says, no, I appreciate the invitation, but I'm not going up right now because my time has not yet arrived. You see, Jesus knows that there is a moment to do what his brothers are telling him to do. There is a moment to go into Jerusalem and blow the doors wide open, to come in riding on the foal of a donkey, being acclaimed with palm branches as the promised Messiah, and uh, cries of Hosanna, and uh, to come into the city and spend a city, taking on the challenges of every religious authority and humiliating them on the public stage. He knows that's coming. He knows that the time to make clear to the world who he is is coming, but the time has not yet arrived. He's not, he knows what's going to happen when he does that. He's going to complete his mission, which is going to culminate in crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension. And before that can happen, the Father has made it clear that there are things he has yet to do. He is still training his disciples. The Gospel of John is kind of divided in two big chunks. The opening chunk is Jesus dealing with the unbelieving world around him. But then near the center, we enter into this whole section of Jesus just talking with his disciples. And there is so much teaching crammed into the second half of John where Jesus is just walking his disciples through all these things he needs to teach them. So Jesus knows it's not time yet. I have a lot still to teach my disciples before it's time to die. It's not the moment right now. That is still months down the road. But this Feast of Tabernacles, in, the gospel, in John's Gospel at least, is the point at which Jesus will go to Jerusalem, he will stay there through Hanukkah, and he will be there for Passover. He will not return to Galilee, and he will die that following Passover. Uh, but he says, it's not time now. I have things yet to complete. I can't just willy-nilly go and do whatever when it seems like a great idea to me. I am bound to the Father's plan. Your time, on the other hand, is always ready. You see, when your life is not bound to God and what he's up to, one day is as good as the next. You can do anything you want, any day you want. You want to go to church, you go to church. You want to go fishing, you go fishing. You want to go hang out, go hang out. You want to leave and spend a month traveling abroad. Do whatever you want. Nobody cares. Your time is yours. Do whatever you want with it. You owe yourself to nobody. It's always time if you're not concerned about what God wants from you. 
You always have time to do whatever you want. You know why? Because your life doesn't mean anything. Who cares what you do or don't do? There's nothing eternally significant that you are doing, so you can do whatever you want. Nobody's going to care. We have freedom at the cost of uh, importance or significance or meaning. He says, the world can't hate you, it hates me. Why does the world hate Jesus? Because he's bearing witness about it. This is another important theme in John, bearing witness. The idea of witness is something you have personally experienced and you are giving a personal testimony on behalf of that to those outside, those listening. You are giving a first-hand account of what you have encountered experientially yourself. That is what bearing witness is. It's not just sharing information. It's information you have interacted with personally. And bearing true witness is a very important theme in the Gospel of John. Letting others know the truth of what you have experienced personally. So Jesus is bearing truth about the world. And what does Jesus tell us about the world? That it is rotten to its core. That what the world is up to is evil. That sin is bad and sin destroys and kills. And it's killing us all. It is the death of everything good. Jesus is confronting the reality that creation is broken and needs saving. And he has come to give up his flesh for the life of the world. And the world hates him for pointing out that they are broken. Jesus says the world hates me because of this. It can't hate you. You know, if, you're, if you haven't uh, made that transfer from being in rebellion against God to surrendering yourself to him and becoming his, if you've not made that change, then you know why the world can't hate you? Because you are that world. The world is in open rebellion against its creator and humankind is seeking to establish its own godhood in isolation from God. And until you have bent the knee before God and surrendered to Christ, you are part of that rebellion. You are part of the world that hates Christ. So the world can't hate you if you're on their side of things. But it hates Jesus. And so long as you're committed to finding your way apart from Jesus, you're part of that rebellion against the Creator. You're part of that hatred of God's solution to the problem of our evil. Jesus says, you go. I'm not going up to this feast. And I would point out that I don't think this means, uh, obviously, he ends up going to the feast later on. So uh, what he means to say is, I'm not going in the manner in which you are suggesting. I'm not going with this big group of people. I'm not going to make a big hubbub. I'm not going to use this as my... uh, declaration, open declaration of Messiahship in Jerusalem. I'm not going to do what you're suggesting. You guys go ahead without me. And we know 
from when he was 12 years old. This is how it worked. They would travel down in caravan, a huge group of them, all the way down to Jerusalem, and then they would all come back together. It would be a huge uh, undertaking to the point that his parents, when they were coming back and he was 12 years old, they were coming back. They traveled a full day before they realized Jesus wasn't among them. That's how big a crowd we're talking about moving back and forth between the two. Well, Jesus didn't participate. He didn't go publicly in that manner. Uh, you go ahead. My time has not yet been completed. He stayed in Galilee. And there is freedom in ignoring Jesus. And there is some degree of comfort or ease in ignoring Jesus because you know what if you don't stand with him then you don't have to worry about all the bile and hatred that is uh, directed toward him you, it's not going to splatter you you can uh, ignore all of that and you have the freedom to do whatever you want whenever you want you can pursue whatever career path you want you can marry whomever you want you can do anything you want you can uh, do whatever pleases you any moment of any day but you know what that freedom and that ease comes at the expense of your soul and the reason you're free to do anything is that nothing you do means anything it's all the same who cares what you do or don't do We can have this freedom and ease, but at the expense of eternity and significance. I have a question from these verses. Jesus said that if we aren't living for the Father, there are no timing constraints on our lives, no hatred from the world at large. What is the downside to not living for the Father? Let's finish verses 10 through 13. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not openly, but as in hiding. Therefore the Jews were looking for him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he is good. But others were saying, no, he deceives the crowds. However, no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. I think we see in these verses three ways you can get it wrong with Jesus. The first is the people, the Jews who are searching for Jesus at the feast because they want to kill him. Now, some people have responded to Jesus that way. Some people are, are not content to just say, I don't believe in Jesus. They want him erased from history. They want him gone. And there are atheists out there who have made it their life's work to devote themselves to scholarship, and they have done more research on the historical Jesus than most Christians ever will. Because they are bound and determined to erase Jesus from history. They want him dead and gone. They don't want to hear a, a whisper of, it, of the name. That's one way to get it wrong with Jesus. There's the, kind of on the opposite side of that, is another wrong response. The people who just say he is good, but they kind of whisper it. No, he's, he's okay. He's fine. They don't want to say it too loud because they don't want the Jews to hear. And they don't want to get in trouble. But surely he's not that bad. And uh, that's, that's not going to do you much good. Because what Jesus said about himself is not just that he's pretty good. 
He said, I'm God. He said, if you don't eat what I have come to give you, you are dead forever. I'm not just some nice thing you can accessorize with. I am life itself. I am God Almighty. Before Abraham was, I am. I can walk three and a half miles on top of the sea. And the first thing I say to my disciples is, I am, fear not. He can claim the holy name of Yahweh. I am. So just saying Jesus is good, just saying, oh, he's okay. That's not going to do you any good. Having a positive opinion of Jesus is not enough. You need to recognize not just that he's good, but I need him. If you haven't gotten there, you haven't gotten anywhere near where you need to be with Jesus. And of course, if you know who he is and what he is and all that is involved in that, then you don't have to whisper that he's good because you're not scared of anybody. You don't care what the Jews have to say about it, these religious authorities. You don't care what anybody in power has to say. If Jesus is God Almighty, then I don't care what anybody else has to say about him. There's no need to fear. There's another group that's afraid to talk too loudly, and they have a negative opinion of Jesus. No. I mean, I'm not all about, you know, kill, we don't have to kill him, but he's just yet another one of these charlatans. You know, religious types, they get out there, they prey on the gullible and innocent, the desperate, the destitute, the guys who have no studies and no education and can't figure out the truth of things. And a lot of times Christians are caricaturized as weak-minded and willed that somehow we're too fragile for life and that's why we come to faith in Jesus. They seem to think that about him. No, he's deceiving the crowds. He's putting one over on them. And these cynics are convinced that they've got the real take on reality. Yeah, the world stinks, but that's just the way it is. Well, obviously, that's not going to help you much. If the world really is rotten to the core and there is somebody who's come to offer a fix and Jesus is that somebody, then dismissing him is a terrible, terrible mistake. And assuming that he's like all the other charlatans that the world has seen. And let's, let's face it, there's no shortage of charlatans out there who are peddling this or that. Jesus didn't do that. Did you notice Jesus formed a cult without ever sexually abusing anybody, without taking anybody's money? How many people have done that? People who started religions didn't do that. They gathered harems. They made themselves wealthy at the expense of their followers. Great religions in the world today were started by men like that. Jesus never did any of that. He didn't come for himself. He came for us. I have a final question. Some people wanted to kill Jesus. Some called him a good guy but kept their voices down. Some dismissed him as a deceiving charlatan. Why are all of these responses to Jesus wrong? I told you when we started, there are so many ways to get it wrong with Jesus. You can foam at the mouth and rail at him. You can shake your fist. You can tell people they're uh, idiots for believing he even lived. 
much less that he did any of the stuff we say he did or had the power to do the things he says he can do. Some popular atheists have taken that path. We can say he's a good guy, a great teacher, uh, love some of the, you know, that stuff about judge not lest you be judged. Ooh, that's a great one. I can put that on my refrigerator. You know, you can be happy about some of the stuff he said you like to hear. But dismiss him as God, as Savior, as King. Or you can just say, no, he's just one more in the long string of people who've convinced other people he was something great, but is just... Uh, taking advantage of the gullible and weak-minded. Here's the problem with all those responses. Jesus came to expose a problem that cuts to the core of creation. Sin has permeated this creation. Evil. And we know it. There's this sense that the world is not as it should be. That something in the core of everything is just not right. And no matter how hard we try to fix it, it's always still rotten. We complain about our politicians and how corrupt they are and how they manipulate power and authority to their own benefit and don't actually serve the people. We complain about this, but guess what? We have been complaining about that since there were human beings on earth. The world has a serious, profound problem. Jesus has come to tell us there is a problem. And more importantly, I have come to offer the solution. I can fix what is broken. And here's the real part that becomes important to us. The problem with the world and sin is not just the world's problem. It's my problem. Sin is my problem. And that's why I get offended at Jesus. Because he looks me in the face and says, you are broken. You are hopelessly, desperately lost. And unless I save you, you're dead. We don't want to hear that. We want to think we can, we've got it under control. We want to think the problem is the world around us. I don't have a problem. Well, if you finally open your eyes to the witness Jesus is bearing about the world and yourself, that you are broken and need him, then you can come to receive from him what he came to give you. Healing, transformation, restoration, life, abundant and eternal. Will you reject all these flawed responses and embrace faith instead? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for recognizing our problem and not staying quiet about it, but coming and bearing witness letting us know there's a problem and not only, not just showing up and saying we're all wrong, but showing up and saying here's the problem Here's what I'm going to do to fix it. Thank you that you invite us to put our trust in you and to be a part of your restoration, to be a part of your healing and restoring and remaking. Give us hearts that are centered not on ourselves but on you. Take our lives and use them for your glorious purposes. Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you so much for coming today and worshiping with us. There are a couple of quick announcements I wanted to make here before we're done. Remember, the, this is our uh, final week of... Uh, well, we have until next Sunday. So next Sunday will be the final Sunday to turn in your deacon nominations. Let me encourage you to prayerfully ask God, who, who in this life of this church really has a heart for serving others? And uh, put those names down and uh, put them in our offering plate. Uh, and we will uh, use that to help us uh, fill our deacons. We know every year we rotate people on and off. Uh, so be sure to participate prayerfully in that. Um, also, I think there's another announcement. Yes, next Sunday, first Saturday in the month, we're having our men's breakfast at 9 a.m. in the student center, so please be here for that. Uh, and again, men of all ages, you can bring uh, teenagers and kids with you if you'd like. Uh, we, we welcome anybody. Uh, so come and we'll have our breakfast together at 9 a.m. Is there any other announcement? Am I forgetting something, Doyle? Okay, great. Well, uh, let me pray for our uh, offering. We will, f we will conclude by, as we're heading out, uh, we have our offering plates on the way out, and that's one final act of worship we do is bring our, our tithes and offerings in gratitude to God and investment in his kingdom. So let me encourage you to do that as we head out today. But let me pray, and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Dear God, thank you for all you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the privilege that it is to invest of ourselves in your kingdom. Thank you that we can uh, spend of our money on things that can affect eternity. And I pray you do that, that you take these tithes and offerings we gather today and use them to impact people's lives in a permanent, indelible way. Uh, use this uh, for your kingdom and your glory. We love you, Jesus. Be with us as we head out from here. And use us in our lives for all these things uh, that you have uh, set for us this week. Help us to be attentive to your voice. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.